subject of prayer is a man by the name of E.M. Bounds. If you've never read an E.M. Bounds book on prayer, just pick up any one of them and begin to read it, and it will change and transform your prayer life. I was reading one of his books this week, and in that little book on prayer, E.M. Bounds had this statement that struck me. It just was one of those statements when I read it, I thought, man, I like that. I want to put it up on the screen, and I want you to hear what he said. He said, the Word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed and by which things are mightily Now, we're going to come back to the rest of that statement here in just a minute. But just that part of it, when I read it, I went, man, that sounds really good. The problem is, I didn't have any idea what a fulcrum was. (laughs) Now, I liked it, but I didn't quite get it, right? Now, I know some of you are much more intelligent than I am, and when you read that, you immediately knew what it was, but there may be a couple of you in the room that are thinking like I was, what in the world is a fulcrum, right? So I did what any American in 2014 does. I Googled it, right? I Googled the fulcrum. Uh, I did. I figured Ian Bounds was safe. I could Google that word and be all right. So I Googled that word and, and up came some definitions. <laughs> Here's the definition of a fulcrum. It is a pivot point around which a lever turns. Now, that started to make a little more sense for me, but I'm a visual guy, so then I did what you do next, right? I clicked the images tab. Because I needed a picture of that to understand what a fulcrum was. And when I begin to look at fulcrums and, and, and levers on the internet and look at pictures, one of the examples that they give of a fulcrum is this right here. This is a what? It's a wheelbarrow, right? Now, the fulcrum is the wheel. The handles here are the lever. Now, I want to illustrate this. I'm going to ask Pastor Teddy. We all love Pastor Teddy, right? We have absolutely, and I know I'm biased, but listen, I speak a lot of places. I'm over 100,000 miles a year on an airplane traveling and speaking. We have the best worship pastor in the United States of America. We do. We are blessed. But as much as I love this man, if I wanted to pick him up and carry him around the stage this morning, I would struggle to do that, right? But I'm going to ask Teddy to get in. Now, be glad to get your phones out, right? I know everybody's wanting to answer us. So Teddy's going to get in. And now a weight which I could not pick up by myself Right Now, now look, look what the fulcrum does. When I leverage against the fulcrum, I can pick Teddy up, and I can move Teddy around on the stage, right? Why? Because I have leveraged against the fulcrum, and now I can move a weight that I could not move without it. 
Now we're going to put the quote back up on the screen. Thank you, Pastor Teddy. Amen. Now, I, I wanted to do it visually because I wanted you to get it. But now look at it. The Word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed and by which things are mightily moved. I told you you're going to like that quote. Then look what he goes on to say. God has committed himself, his purpose, and his promise to prayer. His word becomes the basis and inspiration of our praying. We could go home right now. (laughs) And we've had a word from God. Listen, here's the point. I put it up on a statement because I want you to get it. There is great power in leveraging our prayers against the truth revealed in the Word of God. Read that out loud with me. There is great power in leveraging our prayers against the truth revealed in the Word of God. We talked last week about pursuing truth. Why is that so important? Another reason it's so important is it reveals for us how we are to pray. We can pray the Word of God and leverage our prayers against the fulcrum of God's Word. And by that, things are mightily moved. Nowhere is this principle more applicable than throughout the book of Psalms. We're journeying together as a family of faith through the book of Psalms. We're taking 17 weeks and just reading the entire book of Psalms together. Every weekend we're preaching out of the Psalms. And this week, starting on Monday morning, you started in Psalm 51. And you read this week from Psalm 51. If you read every day all the way up to this morning, this morning you finished on Psalm 61. Did you notice how many of the Psalms were prayers? Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your power. Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Psalm 57. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Psalm 60. Oh God, you would have, you have rejected us and have broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. Then this morning, Psalm 61, look what he said. Hear my cry, oh God, give heed to my prayer. 
Over and over and over again, we read the psalmist crying out to God in prayer. And you and I can pray the psalms. You see, as you and I are reading the psalms, we can pray through the Psalms to God. I've heard people say, I have my Bible reading and my prayer time in the morning. Listen, don't separate your Bible reading and your prayer time. Leverage your praying. Against the fulcrum of the Word of God and read the Word with prayer. As I read the Word of God, as God reveals truth to me, guess what I can do? I can then converse with God and back to God in prayer. I'm taking the truth that God has revealed and I'm leveraging prayer in my life by applying. Maybe it's a promise that I can claim. Maybe it's a sin that I need to confess. Maybe it's a relationship that I need to reconcile. Whatever it is, as I'm reading through the text, God is revealing truth and then I I'm leveraging prayer against the truth of the Word of God. Praying through the Psalms. Having a conversation with God about His truth. Let me give you two examples from my life, and then I want to jump into the text of the morning, all right? A couple of examples, and this is some Psalms that I've been praying in my life for years, and I've also been using these to pray for other people. You do know the greatest thing you can pray for somebody else is the Word of God. Sometimes people say, oh, pastor, would you pray for me in this situation? And to be honest with you, I don't know what God wants to do in that situation. But I know what I can pray. I can pray the Word of God. You know why? Because the Word of God is truth. And it's God's truth for them. And God can take the truth of His Word and accomplish mighty things in our lives. One example from my life that I pray often is Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 13, and 14. Look at these verses. The psalmist said, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. The word presumptuous is an idea of taking it for granted. It's those little sins in our life that maybe we don't even pay attention to. The psalmist says, Oh God, would you keep me from even those little things? God, those things that maybe nobody else is even noticing. God, would you keep back your servant from presumptuous sins? Look what he says. Let them not rule over me. And then, he says, I will be blameless. Then I will be acquitted of great transgression. Here's what he's praying. God, would you so clean me up that you would keep me from even the little stuff in my life? Because God, that's the way that I'll avoid great transgression. Then he says, let the the words of my mouth. God, today would you let the words of my mouth And Lord, 
what I allow my heart to meditate on. Lord, would you let even that be pleasing in your sight today? Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, you know what I know? That's the will of God for my life. You know how I know that? Because he's revealed that his truth in his word. So you know what I'm doing when I'm praying? I am now praying the will of God for my life. That is leveraging prayer against the truth of the word of God to move things mightily. Because now I am agreeing with God. I am praying in concert with the will of God. Let me give you another example from my life. Psalm 36, 11. If you want one verse to pray over your pastors, pray Psalm 36, 11. I pray this verse over my life. I pray this verse over our pastors. I would ask you to pray it over us. It deals with the two great enemies in the life of a pastor. Listen to what it says. Let not the foot of pride Come upon me. What is that? That's the enemy within. We all got that, right? Then he says, let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. That's the enemy without. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Let not the foot of God, would you deliver me today from myself? And God, would you deliver me today from those who would want to trip me up and the enemy that would want to destroy my life? You know what I know? That's the will of God for me. How do I know? Because it's in His Word. It's His truth. Now, understanding that, listen to what Henry Blackaby said. Look at this quote. I love this. Blackaby said, The purpose of prayer is not to conform God to our will, but to adjust our will to God. That's so good! The purpose of prayer is not for me to try to manipulate God to do what I want. The purpose of prayer is for me to lean into the truth of the Word of God. And when I lean into the truth of the Word of God, those things in my life that could not be moved, God then begins to move them. Why? Because it is His will for my life. And now through the vehicle of prayer, I am being conformed to the will of God. That's good stuff, isn't it? I, 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 listen, it, it helped me this week. I, I, I put out on Twitter last night, I couldn't wait to get here and preach this morning. I couldn't wait. It was so fresh for me this week. So, so let me give you an example. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 you read this week. I don't have time to give you all the backstory of Psalm 51. I've done it a couple weeks ago. I told you David's story. If you weren't here, you can go online. You can watch and hear David's story as I preached out of Psalm 32 on the glory of forgiveness. But this is the psalm of confession after David's been broken by God over his sin. 
And he begins in Psalm 51 to get right with God, to get honest with God, to confess his sin to God. And then right in the middle of this psalm, David gives us this this little prayer. Really, you could pray every verse of this psalm. Every verse of Psalm 51, you could just put in your prayer life and just, just work through it over and over and over again. But I want to focus this morning, just because for time's sake, we, we don't have time to go through the whole thing. I want to look at verses 10 to 13. Right in the middle, David says this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. You could pray that every day. David is crying out to God. And with this simple four-verse section of Psalm 51, we learn some things from David's cry that can become a part of the regular cry of our own heart to God in prayer. Now, each of these verses, I'm going to give you four statements. We're probably going to unpack only two of them. And then I'm just going to give you the other two. You can kind of dig into those on your own. But David really prays four things. Here's the first one. You and I can pray for the presence of God in our lives. Pray for the presence of God in your life. David had become very aware of who he was in his own strength. At this point in the life of David, we are reading David in his moment of greatest spiritual failure. David had done things he never dreamed he would do. David had committed acts that if you'd ask him, He would have said, no, I will never do that. David had become very aware of who he was in his own strength. And let me tell you what it was. It was ugly. He knew. He desperately needed God actively present within him to change him from the inside. you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you've become very well aware of how desperately you need God. When you get to see who you really are, it's not pretty. 
And we need the presence of God in our lives. John Gill said it this way. Nothing is more desirable to a child of God than the presence of God. David uses two words to describe the active presence of God in his life. First of all, he uses the word create. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Say that with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. The word create is a a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word. In English, you would say it this way, bara. It's a Hebrew word that is a verb. And this verb that is used in the Bible, every time it is used in the Bible, only God is the subject of this verb. Meaning, only God baras. It's the word in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God bara. God created the heavens and the earth. It is a word that describes causing something to exist where there was nothing. It's a verb that describes a work of divine power. Here's where David was. David knew he was so desperate, only God could do what needed to be done in David's life. You got into the place where you know only God. Before I became a Christian, as a freshman in college, I, I, through my senior year of high school into college, I'd been a pretty good kid up to that point, but I, I, I did some things and got involved in some things that I'm not proud of today. Let me leave it at that. Most people that knew me would have still said, oh, Vance was a good kid, but they didn't know some of the things I got involved in. Then God saved me as a freshman in college and very shortly after that called me into the ministry and for now 25 years I've been serving the Lord in ministry and I've often wondered, Lord, why'd you let me? Because when you, those of you that have some stuff in your past you're not proud of. Listen, we know the forgiveness and the grace of God is real and it's rich and it's amazing. But listen, there's still consequences. There's, there's some scars. There's an openness to some temptation that wouldn't be there if you hadn't walked down some of those paths before. Some things you have to deal with. God, God, why? Why'd you? And here's, I don't remember when it was, it's years ago, but God kind of spoke this into my heart. Vance, I wanted you to just see 
just who you were apart from me. Let me tell you what I know. Like David, it was ugly. And that's why today, when, when I stand and, and preach the Word of God, listen, I'm the most shocked guy in the room that God could ever use me. Because I know who I am. David got to a place. Only God. Barah! Only God. Second word he used was renew. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew is a different word than create. It's a word that means to restore. It's the picture of a city or a building that has begun to be dilapidated or torn down. And it's coming in and restoring and renovating and reconstructing that which has been laid down. So with those two words, let me, let me tell you what David was praying here about the presence of God in his life. First of all, with the word create, here's what David was praying. God, where I am nothing, would you be something? Oh, God, create in me a clean heart. God, where I am nothing, would you do what only you can do and be something? Paul, Paul identified with this struggle. Turn over your Bible to Romans chapter 7. If you never read Romans chapter 7, you ought to read it. It's encouraging. You're going to find out why here in just a second. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, we're reading the writings of Paul. How many of you think Paul was a pretty good Christian, right? Yeah, I'd say he's got to be in the top five, right? I mean, he's, he's, he, I mean when you write two-thirds of the New Testament... You're doing pretty good. Listen to what Paul said, verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me. He's where David was. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Anybody else ever live there? I, 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 I want to. But look what he goes on to say. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's not here copping out. He's not, not, not passing the buck. He's acknowledging the reality of his own flesh. Verse 21, I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, right? In my heart of hearts, I hear the word of God, and I go, yay, I joyfully rejoice with the word of God. But 
I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war. I, I hear the word of God. We're sitting here in church. Man, I'm hearing the word of God preach and I'm rejoicing. Yes, that's the truth. And I'm going to leave here and my flesh is going to go a war against the truth of the word of God. And my flesh is going to want everything in this world. That's what he says. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. You ever feel that? Who will set me free from the body of this death? <laughs> and then he has an epiphany. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he's saying. Where I in my flesh am nothing. Where I in my flesh long for the things of this world. Christ in me can be something through me when I am nothing. How does that happen? Listen, here's how it happens. Moment by moment. But here's a good model in, in Romans 6. Put Romans 6 up on the screen. Romans 6, 12. Paul gives us a model of how we can pray. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here's what he's saying. Daily, moment by moment, I can cry out with David, Oh God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you be something in me where I'm nothing? God, today I give you the members of my body. I give you my hands, my feet, my legs, my arms, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my mind, my emotions, my will, my affection, my desires. God, I give it all to you. In and of itself, God, it's nothing. It's my flesh. But Lord, would you, Barah, would you... You do something in me that I cannot do on my own. And would you live your life through me? David is praying for the presence of God in his life. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit. Then he, he uses that word renew. Here's what he's praying with renew. God, where I am in the way, would you move me out of the way? David looked at his life and he saw where he'd messed up. Where he'd already begun to damage some of the things God had already done in his life. He said, God, would you, where I've blown it, where I've messed it up, where I've allowed my flesh to get in the way and ruin your activity in my life, God, would you, would you rebuild it? God, would you just come in and here's the beautiful, put those pieces back together. Isn't that good that God will do that? My wife and I like to watch all those shows on TV where they take the old homes and, you know, they come in and they, whether it's Property Brothers or Rehab Addict, or I know some of you guys just think I just lost my man card, right? Because I'm <laughs> watching all these shows on HGTV, but they're really good. She drugged me into it, but now I like them. They take these old houses that are falling apart. 
And by the end of the show, you're like, I'd live there. That's what David said. God, you see the pieces where you'd already begun to work. And I rebelled. And I blew it over. I knocked it down. God, just, 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 just put it back together. Renew. It's the same thing John the Baptist prayed. He must increase. I must decrease. God, would you, where I'm in the way, move me out of the way? That's what David's praying about, the presence of God in his life. The active presence of God. When I leverage my prayer against the fulcrum of the Word of God, things move mightily. Let me give you a second thing David prayed that you and I can pray. Pray for the power of God on your life. Psalm 51 and verse number 11 is kind of a scary verse, right? I mean, created me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. We like that one. Verse 11 is a little bit frightening. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. (laughs) That's a little unnerving, right? Some of you read that this week, like some folks in my small group read it this week and brought that to the table and said, hey, we need to talk about that verse. What does that mean? Well, in order for us to understand what David's crying out, there are two things we need to know. Number one... David's understanding of the Holy Spirit was incomplete. What do you mean by that? In the Old Testament, God was progressively revealing Himself. We don't have time to turn there, but you turn to Hebrews 1, read the first three verses. It teaches us that in the Old Testament, God was revealing Himself like pieces of a puzzle, one piece at a time. It wasn't until the New Testament era when Jesus came that we got a complete revelation of the person and character of God. So Old Testament saints, although believers just as much as you and I, our belief is looking back at a complete revelation. Their belief was looking forward based on the promises without understanding everything. As a matter of fact, Psalm 5111 is the first time in the Bible the name, the Holy Spirit, is even used. Up until this point, the Bible's referred to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord. This is the first time that that term that in the New Testament becomes the name that we're all used to hearing and comfortable with, the Holy Spirit of God. This is the very first time in the Bible that that term for the Spirit of God is even used, the Holy Spirit. So David's understanding of the Holy Spirit was incomplete. 
He didn't know everything that we know today. Here's the second thing you got to know. David's experience with the Holy Spirit gave him cause for concern. David had followed King Saul. If you don't know the story, you can go read it on your own in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's really 1 Samuel 14, 15, 16. You can read it. Those of you who know the story, you know what I'm about to say. Saul had had the anointing of God on his life. The power of God came on Saul's life and anointed him as king. But then in 1 Samuel 16, it says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And Saul really lost his mind and became like a crazy man in his old age. He had no power of God left on his life. And David, as a young shepherd boy growing up, had seen the power of God on Saul's life. And now he'd witnessed the power of God not on Saul's life. And David said, I've sinned against God. Oh, God, don't let what happened to Saul happen to me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we look back with more clarity. And let me give you three statements that will help bring clarity to Psalm 51.11. Here's the first one. All believers, Old Testament and New Testament, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The moment you become a Christian, the new life that comes to live in you is the Holy Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, we're still dead in our sins. It is the Spirit of God that brings life to us spiritually. The Holy Spirit of God indwells all believers. And listen, this is true from Genesis to Revelation. Every believer, every person that has ever put their faith in the Messiah has been born again by the Spirit of God coming to live inside of them. So David had it, Abraham had it, in the New Testament Paul had it, Peter had it. Today you and I have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. He indwells us. Let me give you a second statement. In the Old Testament, only some people were empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, this is what David had seen. All believers are indwelt by the Spirit, Old and New Testament. But in the Old Testament, not all believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God would come and anoint, most often, prophets, priests, and kings. In the Old Testament, the anointing of God would come on prophets, priests, and kings. And sometimes the the power of God would rest on those that were believers and dwelt by the Spirit of God. And other times, like in Saul's case, God's power would rest on those who weren't believers. And God would anoint and empower them to accomplish His purposes. In the Old Testament, don't miss this, not all believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were all indwelt but not empowered. Now here's the third statement we understand now from the New Testament. In the New Testament, not only are we all indwelt, but listen, we now all 
have the ability to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. You say, when did that transition happen? It happened on the day of Pentecost. Some people have the mistaken idea that it was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit of God came into believers. That is not true. In the Old and New Testament, believers have always been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. If they weren't, they were still dead. They'd not been made alive. Then what happened on the day of Pentecost? Here's what happened. The Holy Spirit of God transitioned His ministry from simply anointing a few prophets, priests, and kings to anointing all of us and all of us having the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Here's what happened on the day of Pentecost. We went from prophets, priests, and kings to fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes, all having been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And look what happened. The church became an unstoppable force. The gospel began to explode. Why? Because now the anointing, the power of God didn't just rest on a few people, but the power of God was on every believer. Listen to what Francis Chan said. He said in his book, The Forgotten God, when I read the book of Acts... I see the church as an unstoppable force. The church was powerful and spreading like wildfire, not because of clever planning, but by a movement of the Spirit. Riots, torture, poverty, or any other type of persecution couldn't stop it. When you examine, when you examine the lives of those people in the early church, they were a bunch of messed up people. With no power, no authority, no influence, no education, no strategy, no creativity. They just met Jesus. They were redeemed by the power of the gospel. They were, dwell, they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And then on the day of Pentecost, they were empowered by the Spirit of God. And this little ragtag bunch of nobodies started turning the world upside down. How do you explain that? Here's how you explain that. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, don't miss this. Hang on. The same Holy Spirit of God that empowered the church in the book of Acts is the same Holy Spirit of God that dwells in you and that dwells in me. And we can have the power of God on our lives and on our families and on our church. Jim Cimbal has written a great book called Spirit Rising. I'm reading it right now. Listen to what he said. He said, like the early disciples, we are a flawed people. But Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to empower us in amazing ways as we do his work on earth. All the power we need is there for the asking. And when we leverage our prayers against the fulcrum of the Word of God. When we leverage, oh God, don't take your Holy Spirit. Oh God, don't let the power of God come off my life. Oh God, don't let the power of God come off my family. Oh God, don't let the power of God come off of our church. Then God begins to move mightily because we are leveraging our prayers against the fulcrum of the Word of God. Y'all getting this? We can pray for the power of God on our lives. 
But listen to me. Don't miss this. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year lifestyle. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. We're all indwelt by the Spirit. We all have the ability to be empowered by the Spirit. But as you and I choose to rebel against God, as we walk away from the Word of God, we quench. Listen, not the indwelling. We don't lose the Spirit of God living in us. We belong to Him as nothing can change that. But here's what we lose. The power of God on our lives. The word quench is a word that means to extinguish a fire or to stifle or suppress the power of something. When we don't walk moment by moment in submission to the control of the Holy Spirit of God, we'll quench. And that's what David, he didn't understand it, but that's what he was wrestling with. He knew that he'd not submitted to the will of God. And now he was saying, oh God, don't take your power off of me. I said, I don't know about you, but I want the power of God on my life. I want the power of God on my family. I want the power of God on this fellowship. Listen, I don't care when people come in here if they say, oh, what a wonderful church. Oh, what a great speaker. Oh, what a great music team. We don't care about it. We want them to leave and say, man, the power of God is here. God is moving here. David prayed for the presence of God in his life. He prayed for the power of God on his life. Let me just give you the other two statements. You can take them home with you. David said, pray for a passion for God to sustain your life. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You can't lose your salvation, but you can sure lose the joy of your salvation. David lost his song. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Not a have to, but a want to. He prayed for a passion for God to sustain his life. Then he prayed this final thing. Here's the fourth one. He prayed for the purpose of God through his life. Did you hear him? When the presence of God is in my life, the power of God's on my life, then the purpose of God will be accomplished. Through my life. You hear me? Creating me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't, don't, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Give me, Lord, Lord, put your power on me. Lord, sustain me with a willing spirit. God, give me a passion so that my life wants to please you. Then he said, Then, <laughs> then I'll, I'll, I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners to be converted to you. Then, God, your purpose be accomplished through my life. When God called me to preach, after the first two or three times I preached, I had somebody sit down and teach me how to file my sermons. So I have a, have a pretty detailed filing system for, for my sermons. I, I file them by title, text, topic, location, and date. So every message I've ever preached is filed five different ways so that I can 
go back and go through those sermons again. Now there are hundreds of sermons in this file. But sermon number one in the file, 24 plus years ago, sermon number one in the file. is out of Psalm 51. And here's why I'm saying that. 25 years later, I need to pray those things today as much as I ever needed to pray those things. And that's how you pray through the Psalms.